0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. When I offered this class for the
1: first time, I had people saying, but really, what are we going to be cooking?
0: Tenderloin sandwiches? And it's so much more than that. This week on the show, we talk with geography professor Olga Kalanzidu about Indiana foodways and how migrant cultures influence the cuisines of the places they inhabit. And Harvest Public Media shares a story about perennial grain farming. All that and more just ahead, so stay with us. is produced on the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people, on whose ancestral homelands and resources Indiana University Bloomington is built. start with Renee Reed and the Earth Eats News. Hi, Renee.
2: Hi, Kate. Feedlots don't just stink up the car. According to one new study, they're also a major driver of air pollution across the country. As Harvest Public Media's Christina Stella reports, researchers found nearly 18,000 U.S. deaths each year are tied to airborne particles from livestock and farms.
1: Until now, it wasn't clear which kind of farms were hurting human health the most. These health effects include heart attacks, cardiovascular problems, and
2: cancer. Jason Hill is a professor in the Department of Bioproducts and Biosystems Engineering at the University of Minnesota. He says the risks are highest for high-population
1: counties that are upwind of farms in the Corn Belt, California, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina.
0: 80% of those deaths are from animal-based products either the animals themselves, but also from producing the food that they eat.
2: He says the study encourages emission-reducing practices on and off the farm, like eating less meat and no-till farming. Researchers predicted
1: changes by growers and consumers could each cut pollution-related deaths by at least half. Christina Stella, Harvest Public Media. After an all-time
2: high during the pandemic, Rates of food insecurity among American families are finally starting to decline. Nearly one in five families experience hunger at the height of the pandemic. Now that unemployment is declining and the economy is getting back on track, that number is starting to fall. Diane Schanzenbach directs the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University and has been tracking these rates. She says while the decline is good news, we're not out of the woods yet.
0: Some of the the worst, I think, is behind us, but there's still going to be elevated need. I would expect, you know, for quite some time, probably years, even though, you know, we'll clearly be getting better, the economy will be healing, etc.
2: She says federal stimulus checks and increased funding for SNAP benefits have been especially helpful in decreasing food insecurity. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin and Christina Stella for those reports. For EarthEats News, I'm Renee Reed.
0: That's the sound of students cooking in a food lab at Indiana University in the Geography Department.
1: My name is Olga Kalanzidu. I am a lecturer in Geography in the Department of Geography at
0: IU. Professor Olga Kalanzidu is teaching a Geography of Food class this semester with a focus on Indiana foodways. It's a hybrid class with some students meeting in person in the food lab in the basement of the student building at Indiana University. And other students are tuning in via Zoom, cooking in their own kitchens.
1: What are you ladies making today? We are making a cheddar broccoli. Woohoo! It is soup weather for some strange reason in April.
0: So on this day, the focus is on Indiana seasonal produce. The students are finding ways to incorporate ingredients such as early spring onions, asparagus, and winter squash into simple dishes that can be prepared in class. Olga encourages improvisation and adapting recipes to what's available. figure out what we can substitute it with. So it's all about being practical, right? Some students work independently. Others work in pairs. In the lab, they made a frittata, featuring asparagus and fresh local eggs, a pureed butternut squash soup, and a Moroccan tagine-style vegetable stew. Olga moved around the room offering tips and assistance while checking in regularly with the online students to hear how their dishes were coming along. At one point, Olga pulled out an industrial-sized pickle jar from the fridge with layers of light green vegetables packed in a bright red
1: sauce. She explained that they
0: made kimchi during their module on the Asian-American experience and contribution to Indiana cuisine. Kimchi is a Korean pickled condiment made with napa cabbage, daikon radish, and other vegetables seasoned with a flavorful red chili paste. The kimchi had been fermenting for a few weeks, and it was time for a tasting. I asked one of the students, Jake Dixon, what he thought of the finished product. Yeah, I was the one that made it uh, a couple of weeks ago,
1: so I figured I was obligated to try it, but it was actually really good. It does look a little intimidating, though, I will say.
0: <laughs> Is it something you've made before? Or are you no, I've
1: never even had it before. Oh,
0: okay. So you didn't even know what you were getting into.
1: No, I had no idea. <laughs> but it's kinda of fun to make
0: did you sort of cut it in quarters and then fill mm-hmm. it with yeah. like a paste, fill mm-hmm. the Napa cabbage with the pepper paste? Yeah. So yeah. This is basically yep. yeah, that's nice. It turned out really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I thought it was really
1: good. I mean, I've never had it, so I don't know what to compare yeah, it to, but it, it was really good. good. It from my mom.
0: And it will change over time too. Yeah. Kimchi is, is not the first dish that would come to mind for me when thinking of Indiana cuisine. I sat down with Olga Kalanzidu in our studio to learn more about the complexities of food geographies. Our conversation just ahead after a short break. Kate Young, you're listening to Earth Eats. I'm talking with Professor Olga Kalanzidu.
1: I am a lecturer in geography in the Department of Geography at IU, and I come from Greece originally. I came to the U.S. about 30 years ago.
0: I asked Olga about her academic background and how she got into food studies.
1: I am a trained archaeologist, actually. So my previous research in my dissertation was about how potters used uh, different markets to get to different demographics and different ethnic groups. And I did that research in my neck of the woods, which is northeastern Greece next to Turkey. And I was trying to understand how potters distributed their wares and whether there was a correlation between the ethnicity of the potters and the ethnicity of the customers. And of course, what I found was that people, because they had similar historical trajectories and they were using the same markets uh, and using the pots, similarly, to cook similar things, that there wasn't a very distinct correlation between ethnicity and uh, what the potters were doing. And in the process of doing that research, I got to know a lot of the older residents because I did a lot of uh, ethnographic interviews. And I got to know a lot of the residents and how they cooked in the past and what kinds of ingredients they were using. So I got to be more and more interested in food as practice and food as embodied experience. So from there, I started getting more into how food defines us, defines our identities. So I started looking at how new waves of people that are coming to Greece, either as refugees or repatriated Greeks, used food as a way to ease their way into our society and how they interpret
0: their position
1: in Greek society through their food traditions.
0: What do you mean by that? Like, what did you find in terms of with their own food traditions Mm -hmm. or with adopting Greek food traditions?
1: I was focusing actually on the people who were coming out of the Republic of Georgia, uh, of the country of Georgia, as a result of the war with Russia in the 1990s. Greece repatriated those who had Greek heritage, and they are a particular ethnic group that have rights of repatriation, much like uh, Israel has uh, similar laws. So these people were coming into Greek society being identified as having Greek conscience and Greek ethnicity, but of course, uh, not many of them were speaking Greek and they had to find a way to make a living. Some of them went into opening restaurants. In my area, there were several who opened either fast food, what we call fast food restaurant, like Jiro and uh, kebab places, bringing their own traditions of how they were cooking the meat and the spices in the Georgian way, and then incorporating elements of the dominant Greek cuisine or what the customers wanted and kind of uh, meeting the customers halfway. And they have been very, very successful. Several of these businesses have been successful. And another business that I really looked at was a family who created a non bread, uh, making bread in a, in a tandoori oven. And that is something that a uh, Greeks really did not know I'm talking about the middle uh, to late 90s. It became really important not only for the community of Georgians and also other Greeks from the neighborhood started coming into the bakery and getting to know this bread making tradition.
0: And you're saying it's a Georgian bread making tradition cuz when I think of tandoori I think I I just thought it was Indian. <laughs>
1: It is Indian, but a lot of people around Central Asia are using the same technique. So the flat bread making in the tandoor oven, it is widespread along those areas. And through the interactions that people have had for a long time, uh, you can find it from Afghanistan to India to Kazakhstan to Georgia to uh, Armenia. So all these areas are connected. We used to have a bread that we consume, and it's a flat bread, and we consume it on the Monday before Ireland starts. And I have the suspicion that that bread also came with a very first wave of immigrants from that place of the world. So as many places, Greece is a crossroad. And we incorporate a lot as we get new groups of people and new ways of doing things, culinarily speaking.
0: That's really interesting. And it sort of gets to one of the questions I wanted to ask, which is, could you talk about what is geography of food? That's Mm -hmm. something that I think a lot of people might not be familiar with if they're not in food studies. And I know it's something that you teach. Geography of food is part
1: of a branch of geography that is called human geography. And it's human and cultural geography. So we focus on the production and consumption of food and its myriad ways that is related to territories, to to geographies, to specific places. Food crosses boundaries, food informs Decisions that people make from what to buy to what to cook and how to trade. So, all that is part of the geography of food. The way I teach the geography of food is I start with this very big picture of how specific ingredients are tied to specific places through the process of domestication, either animals or plants. And then we start understanding in my class how the world has changed through different periods of time and through different historical trajectories that allowed us to this day to have
0: ingredients from all over the world on our plate. What are some of the specific courses or topics that you teach?
1: I have several classes that I teach in the food and agriculture concentration in, in geography. For foodways, I teach Greek cuisine because I wanted to focus a little bit on where I come from and uh, how that particular region is influenced and influences its neighbors uh, through its geography, through its economy, through its identity. Then I teach Indiana Food Waste, which is a, a course that I developed during the bicentennial. Then I also teach the geography of food and then courses such as edible education where we deal with, it's an introduction to the food system at large that has more of a current events kind of feel because I need to make sure that Whatever is happening in the world of food uh, systems work comes into that class. And urban agriculture. So I have a big palate.
0: <laughs> so I would like to hear more about the Indiana food waste.
1: This is a course that developed out of my interest in the place that I call home for the last 30 years. And this is a course that also speaks to my identity as an immigrant in this society. So just like I am studying or researching how immigrants in my country of Greece actually make their way into their Greek society through their food, I also made my way into this society, into Indiana, through getting to know people and feeding them. I have been always interested in how any region in the U.S., and especially uh, Indiana, incorporates locality and incorporates ways of eating mindfully and ethically. So my course has two purposes. First of all, to describe to the students how the different groups that came to Indiana left their particular taste on the environment, on the foodways, practices, etc. And then to let them think about the local food system and how they can make use of local resources in order to eat more mindfully, ethically and close to their homes.
0: I think that when I hear Indiana Foodways, I'm thinking, what are the foods? What are the dishes? You know, what are the recipes? Mm-hmm. What are the what's the cuisine of mm-hmm. Indiana? And, you know, frankly, it doesn't sound particularly interesting to me. <laughs> but uh, So uh, I want to yeah. hear a little bit about how you think about that
1: the students that come to my class, that's the first question I ask them. So what is the cuisine of Indiana? And they say meat and potatoes and bland food. And then we start discussing about the different movements of populations in that er- in this area. Where did they come from? Why do we have fish fries in the southern part of the city, Why uh, of the state? Why do we eat particular kinds of desserts, what informs those decisions? Uh, And usually the answer to that is the movement of people through the state that brought different traditions uh, with them. I start with the Native American presence in the state and we go into a lot of detail about what the resources were, how Native American people actually understood their environment, and what they have imparted or left behind after they were thrown out of the state. And that is the tough reality that we have to deal with. And I think many of my students have not heard that part of the story at all. Indiana has a lot of corn, but it is commodity crop corn. However, If you go in the beginning of the 19th century, when uh, the white settlers are, uh, are moving in, you will see corn grown in different ways and in different conditions, and it was not a commodity crop back then. The upland south migration from the mid 1900s on brings people from the Appalachia region to Indiana And they bring their own traditions. And we see a lot of linguistic idioms with that part of the state. The southern state has very different linguistic idioms from the northern part of the state because it it has different populations. And then slowly we also talk about the influence of the railway and how it brought very different populations to the state. And then we move through different waves of immigrants, starting from the Scotch, Irish, and German that have a very distinct geographical presence. And they continue to inform the landscape through their architecture and through their foodways. And then we continue to go up to Indianapolis when it was deemed the new state capital and what kinds of immigrants came through or other populations from the US. And then I move north with talking about the, the migration patterns that are the result of the building of the railway and the Erie Canal. So it brings other kinds of immigrants from the eastern part of the United States to northern Indiana cities. So all these immigrants come and impart very, very different flavors. To the cuisine. They work their cuisine into their particular understanding of what it means to be a Hoosier, to be an American. So all those discussions are not separate from what is happening to the rest of the U.S. There are also the African Americans who have very distinct communities, and they come from the southern part of the U.S., and they bring their understanding of southern foodways, especially from Alabama, because that's how the railway was connected. And then we incorporate also different immigrant groups, such as the Greeks, the Italians, the Polish people, people of Irish descent, and of course, more recent arrivals such as Latin American communities in the US and Indiana and Middle Eastern. So lots of things to talk about, and in the process, it's not only about the recipes of the food. It is about the racial politics that connect food to identity, what is left out, and what is promoted as indiana food.
0: Okay, well that's helpful because I think that I'm probably one of those people who's, you know, lumping it all together and just saying indiana food is midwestern food and midwestern food is boring and not really understanding the complexity of the different regions in the state and the different populations that have come through or and stayed and influenced it with their foodways and you know, I'm reading Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns, about the Great Migration. And Mm -hmm. so when you started talking about that, I was like, oh, right, because, you know, northern Indiana is close to Chicago, and Mm -hmm. there were a lot of African Americans moving from the south there, Mm -hmm. and they're bringing their foodways. And so that's probably a lot. The food there is probably really different than it is down here. And so, yeah, that's, that's great. The other
1: part that comes up quite frequently is how much of Indiana's food waste, especially before the 1960s, was tied to the land. Because up to the 1960s, a lot of Indiana was rural. It started changing, of course, after World War II with massive industrialization, especially uh, in the north with big farming operations. But up to that point, especially when you're looking at the southern part of the state, smaller farms, much more family-oriented, and I may be having a very rosy picture. It was not a rosy picture. It's very difficult to make a living in the southern part of the state because of our topography. That doesn't allow big farming to exist. So a lot of the foods that people ate were very much part of what they grew. And yes, they might have grown the commercial corn, but the corn they ate And the dishes that they made really took advantage of the resources that they had and the gardens that they had. So that's another part that is missing when we talk about locality. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach these topics in the classroom? I always incorporate an experiential component because I don't think students will learn effectively if they don't do something, if they don't apply their knowledge. So in a typical class environment, I would have the class divided into parts. One of it would be understanding the readings. And then in the cooking lab portion, I pick different recipes, and I am trying to engage the students in in thinking thoughtfully about those ingredients and ways of preparations and how we change them to adapt to the dominant narrative. So Mexican food, for example, in Indiana is not the Mexican food that the immigrants brought in. But lately, we also have discussions that are emanating from the immigrants themselves and the people around them in bringing in more foodways that are particular to the history of that group. So those are some of the themes that come through both in the class and, of course, as we're cooking, They are creating their dishes. They are collaborating with each other. They talk to each other, and I talk to them. So it's a little bit of a chaotic situation (laughs) in a small lab. But what I feel in the end is that something clicks, and they start thinking about Indiana not only as part of the greater United States, but also as part of the world.
0: I mean, it sounds chaotic like kitchens often are, and the you know the casual conversations that are going to be having over preparing mm-hmm. food sounds like brings a lot of richness to the the class and to the discussion and the understanding that they're getting about the food waste that sounds really interesting. so can you give an example of what kinds of Foods you might make in one of these cooking labs. So,
1: for the Native American, for example, module, which I am woefully not a person that should be doing that, <laughs> I just uh, respect the traditions of the ingredients, and I respect the ingredients themselves and the locality of the ingredients. So, I would probably I would incorporate corn patties uh, I would also go and forage some ingredients and also bring in either deer meat if if students have a stash at their houses and you would be amazed how many people in Indiana still have that and the realization they have that you know other groups before them actually had the same practices is, it's really interesting because it really most of them have not thought about this process. In the module about Italian and Greek food, I talked about how the restaurateurs here created dishes that would be more targeted towards the local uh, tastes. How Greek pizza is not really Greek pizza, (laughs) as I know it, and how the Greek salad has been incorporated into the image of what a Greek salad would be for the U.S. and for Indiana.
0: So what are some of the differences? Like, what is a Greek pizza, as you understand it, versus how it is maybe served here?
1: A Greek pizza is very, very thin. And... The Greeks took the tradition from the Italians. These two groups were marginalized anyway, and they were marginalized to the extent that they were actually targeted by the Ku Klux Klan in in the state. So they had a rough time in the beginning, especially the Italian uh, immigrants. Uh, So what we know today as Greek pizza is a movement through space and time and... In the meantime, it gets enriched by the dairy products that are in the state. It gets more heavy with a lot more tomatoes and a lot of uh, meat. It is not the pizza that people were making, let's say, in New York or in the East Coast. So as it moves through the landscape, it
0: changes. I just wanted to go back for a second to when you were talking about the Native American module and... You said you would maybe forage something. I was wondering what kinds of things you might forage, and I know it would probably depend on what time of year you're teaching the class and so forth.
1: I usually rely on knowledge from uh, archaeological deposits. Cattails would be one, for example. Uh, We couldn't go and uh, collect cattails um, because we are not very close to um, uh, marsh. Mushrooms would be one that I would incorporate if there are berries around, I would go and uh, get those. So it depends on when we start talking about these things. And I'm blessed because I have a lot of colleagues who are archaeologists and they supply a lot of information to me
0: about um, what was grown, how it was grown, how it was processed, etc. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Olga Kalensidou from the Department of Geography at Indiana University. We'll return to our conversation after a short break. you for tuning in to Earth Eats today. My guest is Dr. Olga Kalanzidu. We're talking about geography of food and Indiana foodways. What do you think students gain from exploring Indiana food traditions? Why, Why do you think it's important?
1: I'm going to reiterate something that one of my students last semester said, last spring, that by looking at her own culture through an outsider's eyes. She actually appreciated the rich history of the place, and it allowed this particular student to really understand the different groups that came and uh, subsequently called this place home, and how much of the foodways of previous groups have informed her own foodways. So I've had students in the class when we are going from north to south looking at their dishes and telling me, well, wait a minute, why do we have noodles in the north part of the state and in the south part of the state we have dumplings? So we have to talk about that and where those ways of preparing a very staple dish came from. I would have been more radical and I would have loved to get foods that are very much part of hunting, squirrel stew, for example, but I don't think I am there yet (laughs) with this class. So what I hope my students get is a more granular understanding of the rich histories that make this part unique, the locality of the ingredients, and also the different contributions of the many groups that make Indiana home and how some of those groups might feel very marginalized. We read a book about A Japanese-American, for example, growing up in Vincennes, and it was the only Japanese family, and how they negotiated their needs, their food needs, vis-a-vis what was happening in the community. And that has been really eye-opening, even for the students who are very globally aware. You know, they they, they do have a, a very good understanding of different food traditions, but it's the why behind those food traditions that I'm looking at.
0: It's really interesting to think about this and about our own food cultures because I, you know, I grew up in Southern California and I consider like food that's really nostalgic for me is quesadillas and Mexican-American food from southern california in the 1970s and i always when i think about that i think well that's not really my food that's not my culture but it it is the culture that my parents adopted coming from mm-hmm. the midwest and living in southern california mm-hmm. <laughs> so it it's what i grew up with so it is my food tradition it's just it just feels like it's not really mine because it's you know Central American or you know that's not it's not really you know and and of course it's already changed just from being in Southern California not being in Mexico or so yeah it's just it's just interesting to think about that complexity and what we think of as our own food or our our food traditions.
1: I tend to think of it because I'm an archaeologist and because I teach in the Department of Geography, which are very related fields in in a sense that we both understand broad patterns across space and time, uh, patterns of change. It is very interesting to inquire about these issues of cultural authenticity and cultural appropriation, but with the caveat that people are always moving and changing and adapting and getting to know somebody else's food traditions, while at the same time maintaining a core. When I ask my students, to do an ethnographic kind of interview with older members or just members of their families. Many things come up there that are very residual. And I think this semester that I inserted this kind of exercise, the students were really surprised of how little they knew about where they came from and how they combine a lot of different foodways in their family to make sense of their place in Indiana and in the United States. So bottom line, there is a Hoosier cuisine that is projected to the world or to the United States. But within that Hoosier cuisine, there are many narratives that we need to explore
0: you know as i was learning more about your research i saw a statement you said that your your past work was interested in the ways in which objects actively evoke historical memory and trigger individual remembrances and i was just really struck by that because i have an interest in that from from my own background in in architecture but also in my current personal writing practice that I have. And so I was just wondering if we could talk about, about memory and food a little bit and how, mm-hmm. how certain aromas and flavors can play that same kind of triggering role as maybe an object would. And I think you were talking about pottery or cooking vessels, but that with food it's even more embodied <laughs> and, <Yes. laughs> and you know, sensory um, than, than even an object might be.
1: I'm going to give you an example that I always have in the back of my mind. When I came to the U.S. as a graduate student, I stayed in a dorm for the first year. And that experience was both eye-opening and very limiting in terms of senses uh, and food. Because A, I didn't have access to my own food, and then when I had access to some food that was closer to what I used to eat, it wasn't exactly the same. So one day, I think there were four or five of us who were Greeks, found some cheese, feta cheese, which is very much part of our DNA, (laughs) food DNA. Not the only one, but it is an important one. And some phyllo and some eggs, and we made a very, what we called dirty pie, uh, meaning very quick, and it was not the usual cheese pie that we make, but it went along the lines of having a very rudimentary kitchen and very few supplies. That pie is still in my memory because it was not only the aroma that was combined with everybody else's food being cooked at the same time in Eigenmann. (laughs) Uh, But also the sensorial experience of tasting the cheese and the phyllo and the eggs. And that's all we had. We couldn't find any dill or anything else that goes into that pie. And the four or five people of whom three are still my dear friends who partook in that experience and that started my own journey in food and cooking because i didn't cook that much when i was in greece i started cooking here because i could not find anything that would remind me of where i came from so my senses are continually being tested in, in the place that I've been calling home for 30 years. And I will find sometimes myself in the kitchen thinking and really tasting the smell of something that I've had as a child. And now that I have my own garden and I've had my own garden for a long time, I can actually reproduce that taste. 80%. The 20% comes from Indiana's soil and Indiana's sun and Indiana's rain. And that locality is very much part of how I combine my existence here with my previous memories of taste and smell
0: uh, in Greece. Oh, that's lovely. That was a great response. Well, those were the things that I wanted to talk to you about. Is there anything that you would like to add that we didn't get to?
1: I would encourage people in the state to not put it down as much. It is remarkable that when I offered this class for the first time, I had people saying, but really, what are we gonna be cooking? Tenderloin sandwiches? And it's so much more than that. And if you open up the conversation to include the people, that make this place home. This is a state that can sustain you through food uh, grown locally and it's a it, it has both a rich agricultural history and also a rich human history. And I think in my classes what I strive to do is bring these two together with the Understanding that if we do not ground ourselves in the place, as in a geographic place, we cannot really have those conversations.
0: Well, thank you very much. It was really wonderful to talk with you, Olga. Likewise. Thank you for having me here. I've been speaking with Olga Kalansidu. She's a lecturer in the Department of Geography at Indiana University. Find more about her work on our website, eartheats.org. Farming feeds the world. But it's also heating the planet, responsible for about 12% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Harvest Public Media's Brian Grimmett looks into how a small group of Kansans are trying to develop crops that could lessen agriculture's carbon footprint. So this is... The warm season greenhouse. This right here is all sorghum. Inside a uh,
3: greenhouse at the Land Institute near Salina, Kansas, researchers try to create perennial grains that more closely mimic how a natural prairie works. That means instead of planting new seed every year, you can plant one time and get several years of harvests. Ebony Morell is one of about 50 people working on the project. What we're seeking to do with perennial agriculture, perennial grains agriculture specifically, is try to utilize the deep root systems that historically we found in prairie systems to actually save soil through uh, reduction in erosion and rebuild it. Plants are natural carbon scrubbers. They take carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere and turn it into leaves and flowers and grain. But it's the roots that really matter. That's because the roots of a plant decompose and eventually become soil. In other words, carbon stored in the ground. So developing a plant that can provide nearly as much grain as an annual crop like wheat, but that also creates the root system of a native prairie grass, would lock more carbon into the ground.
0: I think it's the best opportunity we have to save the soils and still produce food.
3: That's greenhouse manager Tiffany Durr. She's been at the Land Institute for 17 years. Some of its projects attempt to domesticate wild perennial plants, but it's also working on making annual crops such as wheat and sorghum perennials, all through selective breeding. And it's a daunting task. The Land Institute has been experimenting with perennial grains since 1976. And as you might've noticed, farmers are still just planting regular wheat, corn, and sorghum. Durr says she's well aware of the skeptics.
0: Right, right. Well, you know, We're bill out here doing something, they don't know what. Yeah, <laughs> That's know. how it was when I started. People didn't understand that this was real science going on. Um, Big hope grounded in real science.
3: And some of that science is beginning to pay off. Kernza is a type of wheatgrass they've developed that can be used in similar ways to wheat, for making bread or beer. Durr says the grain has finally gotten mainstream attention and major academic research partners. Even a few commercial farmers are actually growing and using it.
0: Having Kernza out there as something that people can actually Buy the flower for and use in their home. It gets, you know it's like it's more tangible, and so it's not just a big idea, pie in the sky idea. It's tangible, it's real, and there's a lot more excitement.
3: Kansas State University professor Chuck Rice is a soil microbiologist. He says perennial crops could represent a big leap for the ability of farmers to improve their soil and sink more atmosphere-warming carbon dioxide back into the ground. But there are major challenges. Annual crops put their energy into this year's harvest. Perennials divert some of that to roots that last from one season to the next, and the next.
2: So the question is, and the challenge that Land Institute and others are trying to do, can you have a, a perennial system that would maintain the roots, but yet produce seed? And so, the, you know, can you have your cake and eat it too? If successful,
3: the crops accomplish what they already know about better farming and conservation practices in one convenient package. Don't till up the ground, keep it covered with some plant growth between crops, and increase the diversity of what's planted. The key will be convincing farmers that they might make more money with smaller harvests by saving on planting and other costs that come with putting in a new crop every year. Ebony Morrell says no matter how long it takes, she's going to keep trying to figure it out. This is, in my mind, a workable solution. And that's what motivates me to want (laughs) to plant hundreds of plants in a greenhouse and and try to do these crazy experiments that are so hard. For
0: Harvest Public
3: Media, I'm Brian Grimmett.
0: Harvest Public Media covers food and farming in America's heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: The EarthEats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblick, Josephine
0: McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Olga Kalanzidu, Jake Dixon, and everyone in the Indiana Foodways class. Our theme music is composed by Erin Toby and performed by
2: Erin and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.